no one thought that the Karabakh issue could galvanize people the way it did. But I don't think anyone really understood how quickly it would mobilize people and lead to this type of mass violence. In fact, leadership early on tried to use the conflict to their political advantage, and I think they continue to do so today. Many of the current political elite in both countries directly owe their positions of power and privilege to the conflict and its aftermath. That's not necessarily where their political careers began, but it's certainly a big reason why they're still in power, if not the reason why they're still in power today. Вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm pleased to welcome Ryan McCarl to talk about the use and abuse of the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh in the media and within Armenia and Azerbaijan. Ryan McCarl is a PhD candidate at University College Dublin School of Geography, where he focuses on geopolitics, borders, and world disorder. He's written articles for Foreign Affairs, The Diplomat, Eurasia Net, and blogs at The Accidental Geographer. His most recent article in Foreign Affairs is United Nations and Sexual Abuse, Why Peacekeeping Reform Has Failed. Here is Ryan McCarl. Why don't we start by having you briefly give a history of the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, what's at stake? Here? Okay, so first of all, I think I need to say that, you know, I'm not an expert on its origins, but I think it's important that we spend a bit of time on this just because it's, it's obviously very important for understanding what's going on today. So the origins are contested. I think that they're manipulated by both sides. And that's why we owe a tremendous amount of debt to different researchers and general uh, journalists, many of whom definitely uh, lived through these times and have risked their lives and continue to risk their lives in order to cover what's been happening. So they've been able to piece together in, out of all of this something resembling the truth. In the English-speaking world, I think Black Garden by Thomas DeWall is probably the most uh, seminal work. So if people are interested in learning more about the origins of the conflict, I would start there. I'm also a big fan of Steve Levine's The Oil and the Glory, and it looks into different oil interests uh, that's, that look into the region as well. So my interpretation draws on their work. And I think it's, it's what, what is clear is, is that the contemporary dispute began in February in 1988, when Armenians started lobbying to have Nagorno-Karabakh, which was at that time part of the Soviet Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan, transferred to the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic. What began as essentially small rallies in Nagorno-Karabakh ended up spreading to Yerevan, where several hundred thousand people gathered in support of the transfer. And also, and this is important to know, in defiance of Moscow. So this was one of the first mass mobilizations from people below in the USSR. And it was in the twilight years of the Soviet Union, obviously. So meanwhile, in, in Karabakh and, and elsewhere, the bloodletting began fairly early on. In February of 1988, some Azerbaijanis had been killed trying to counter protests, leading to a series of reprisals and counter reprisals that only escalated from there. So Soviet leadership at the time in Moscow, including Gorbachev and in Yerevan and in Baku, they were all caught off guard. They'd never seen this type of mass protest before. And in the past, they probably, uh, in all probability, they, they would have crushed it and, and probably ruthlessly. But in the spirit of Glasnost and Perestroika, they basically were at a loss for what to do. So 
as were and most Armenians and Azerbaijanis. And it's important to remember that prior to 1988, several hundred thousand Azerbaijanis lived in Armenia and vice versa. They often lived in the same villages. They had intermarriages and good friendships with each other. And Armenia uh, was certainly more ethnically homogenous than Azerbaijan. But the point is, is that during the Soviet times, the two groups basically lived in peace with each other. So one of the important insights from DeWall's book, uh, to my mind anyways, is that some of the, the people, some of the very leaders in the, in, the, in the different countries that would ultimately lead these countries to ethno-national war, I mean, they used to be good friends uh, with each other, or at least with the leadership on the other side. So as the reprisals escalated, I think it became clear to people on the ground that Gorbachev simply didn't have a handle on the situation, and massive exchanges started taking place. So thousands of Azerbaijanis living in Armenia would swap houses with Armenians living in Azerbaijan. Meanwhile, reprisals and pogroms were ongoing, and, and these brutalized people on both sides. So today, both countries are much more homogenous in comparison, and virtually no Armenians live in Azerbaijan, and no Azerbaijanis live in Armenia. But it wasn't always so. So the fighting itself escalated in the beginning of the 90s, as did some of the atrocities, including the Kajoli massacre in 1992, where several hundred unarmed Azerbaijanis were murdered. These, these sorts of massacres happened on both sides. Eventually, the Armenian nationalists would push Azerbaijani forces out of Nagorno-Karabakh as the political situation in Azerbaijan began to deteriorate and their fighters basically ended up losing the strategic ground. So a ceasefire was agreed to in 1994 that has more or less remained in place until today. Those skirmishes are relatively frequent, and so are losses on both sides. So it's anything but a, you know, a frozen conflict. The battlefield lines that were drawn in 1994 have basically remained the same since that time. The mostly unrecognized Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh Republic now runs the region with backing from Armenia, and Azerbaijan has lost something between 15 and 20% of its internationally recognized territory. And many continue to live as internally displaced peoples, and they're unable to return. So but by the end of all this fighting, there were at least 30,000 left dead and more than a million displaced. So I think it's important to say that no one thought that the Karabakh issue could galvanize people the way it did. Some certainly hoped it would, uh, unfortunately, but I don't think anyone really understood how quickly it would mobilize people and lead to this type of mass violence. In fact, leadership early on tried to use the conflict to their political advantage, and I think they continue to do so today. And it's one of the reasons why it happened the way it did. So many of the current political elite in both countries directly owe their positions of power and privilege to the conflict and its aftermath. That's not necessarily where their political careers began, but it's certainly a big reason why they're still in power, if not the reason why they're still in power today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it, the way you're describing it, uh, based on some of what scholars have looked at, there w seems to be a groundswell from below of nationalism and, and ethnic nationalism. And how do they explain this outbreak of it in the late, in the final years of the Soviet Union, where these people more or less lived in peace throughout? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the real contribution of Thomas DeWall's work is looking at this groundswell. But to me, uh, I'm not sure if that question can, can be easily answered. You know, you know what, why is, did this become the, the issue that galvanized people on both sides through reprisals and what have you? I think that DeWall makes a very significant effort at trying to answer that question. But to me, the thing that I took away from his analysis and others 
is basically that the lessons that political elites took from the late 1990s, or sorry, 1980s and early 90s, is that Nagorno-Karabakh was an issue that was capable of bringing down regimes, of challenging power that hadn't been challenged before, and all of this from below. So imagine how afraid the current regimes of that type are of this type of power, right? So the lesson is clear. Like Nagorno-Karabakh is perhaps the singular issue in the region that both rent-seeking and kleptocracies, they must maintain control of it. If they fail to do so, you know, that could be their downfall. So talk a bit about the way Azeri and Armenian uh, politicians utilize Karabakh for their own political purposes. What role does it play in both societies, both on the level? I mean, you've spoken already about how it plays amongst regular citizens to some extent, and or maybe you can add to that, but also what role does it play amongst the political elite with this conscious understanding that you have to play to this issue to maintain power? Look, it's a vehicle of elite interests in maintaining power for both regimes, and it always has been. Here, we'll take a quote from uh, Policy Forum Armenia. I, I think it summarizes how this works in, in, in good detail, and I think it's worth reciting. So they say that the defense sector remains one of the most closed and corrupt institutions in Armenia, and the public's distrust toward it is getting deeper. This facilitates the formation of a governing criminal oligarchic system under a disguise of democracy. The unconstitutional use of armed forces for cementing power and or treating to employ such power forces uh, to usurp authority. And it's no different in Azerbaijan. There is an international crisis group report that summarizes Azerbaijan quite well. They say that so far, there's been insufficient political will to break the habit of treating the army as above all an instrument with which to protect elite interests. The risk is that fragmented, divided, accountable to no one but the president, untransparent, corrupt, and internally feuding armed forces could all too easily be sent off to fight to satisfy internal power struggles. So clearly, the conflict, but not just the conflict, that that the defense forces themselves are being used in order to maintain elite power in the region. We'll get to, to a bit more than that. But first, in your writings recent over the last week or so after the, the recent flare up of fighting, you've been really critical of how the media has reported on Nagorno-Karabakh. And you've gone so far to say that journalists and analysts become, quote, unwilling combatants in a decade long war that if we're being honest with ourselves, we know very little about. And you've pointed out the fact that most reporting seems to follow a similar script. Why don't you expand and explain your critique of how Nagorno-Karabakh is represented in the the press? First, I want to be really clear here. So again, we owe a, a significant amount of what we know to many reporters and researchers who spent years trying to understand this conflict, especially a lot of the local journalists. And these journalists are often putting themselves at tremendous risk to even discuss the issue. So It's easy to be a critic in comparison, and I think that's important to keep in mind. But part of the problem in the beginning of the the most recent flare-up, for example, is that mass media outlets, they don't draw their insights from these local reporters when something like a major skirmish on the line of contact breaks out. So they end up recycling what little information they have between each other, which is often wrong or missing really important details. Another problem that continually gets neglected in the media coverage of this, somewhat ironically, is the crackdown on press freedoms in both countries. I mean, if we take a look at Reporters Without Borders, their their press freedom index, for example, a lot of people point to Armenia and say, hey, look, at least we're not as bad at cracking down on journalists as Azerbaijan, which is lurking near the bottom of the report. But Armenia still ranks 78th out of you know 180 or something. And so it, the point is, is that how can we get a good, fair idea of what's going on in those kind of conditions when, when journalists who could 
contribute to understanding this are often suppressed or even jailed for for even speaking out against the regime or, or what's going on on the front lines. So another problem is basically structural, right? Like journalists get paid to write about the conflict, but they're asked to keep it to something like 850 to 1200 words. So right off the bat, there's a lot lost in the name of efficiency. And they have to produce rapidly. They have to produce rapidly and they have to, I mean, and they get paid for content, right? And, and I understand that. But an analyst, by the way, I mean, they, they get paid to analyze events, right? So it's not like they're necessarily wrong to do so, but that's what they get paid to do. So lacking good information, right? What do they often turn to? Sometimes they turn to basically what I think is, is, is wild speculation, right? And, and keeping in mind that everybody's employers in all of this mostly get paid and can pay salaries based off of clicks, not information. So anything that seems inflated or that can grab attention, which, by the way, is exactly the job of propaganda, right, um, is used as a headline or a title or whatever. So you've got this real toxic combination of things going on here between journalists getting you know, poor, poor press freedoms and a general lack of information on the, the area, right, from outside uh, reporters. I mean, conflict is always a fertile ground for speculation, but a combination of these things, of little press freedom, a sort of geopolitical reasoning or speculative thinking, and the fact that much of the world doesn't spend any time thinking about this region means that a lot of the reporting can get pretty messy pretty quickly. Do journalists and analysts utilize the journalists on the ground, both in Azerbaijan and Armenia, for information? Because like here I'm thinking of the Russian press, where you know I personally think that the Russian print press has given an unfair treatment because they do a lot of great work, and they do work that you know foreign correspondents just can't do. Do you have some sort of relationship or use of local journalism? I think that as the conflict kind of goes on or, you know, so, so let's, let's take a step back. So something happens on the line of contact that draws in a bunch of outside attention. At, at that moment, I think the information is pretty bad. A lot of agencies are basically trying to get out a story really quickly and they might not have either the right contacts or those contacts might already be getting used. In terms of later on, you know, a couple days after, et cetera, I think that you, you notice a general improvement. I mean, there are reporters, local reporters that are doing really good work. The Guardian, which I think published a pretty bad editorial on the conflict, for its part, they, they ran a recent story that was a cross-boundary piece. It was by Mariana Gregorian and Dernis Safarovas. And this cross-boundary piece, I think, is like a, a really good example of what the press could do, right? Which is taking voices from both sides. You also have the Institute for War and Peace reporting, which is excellent. Eurasianet recently ran a good article on civilians. I think that's fantastic. Onik James Krikorian, I know he's a, a journalist that a lot of people rely on, including myself, to get good information. So the, the journalists are there. I think it, a lot of it comes down to what happens when uh, a flare-up or something like this happens and where do they turn to these outside sort of international media outlets in the beginning. And what role does social media play in all of this? Because I noticed immediately everyone starts tweeting, there's hashtags created. It the social media is very important aspect of propaganda from both sides nowadays, too. So how has this made the situation better or worse? Like most things, social media acts as an amplifier. It's much easier for regimes to get out their propaganda and much more difficult for reporters, especially ones who don't normally pay attention to the region, to separate fact from fiction. It also, and I think this is important, has the effect of making support for the war seem almost universal on either side, right? So people's pleas for peace, they, they get drowned out in the online mob. I mean, the, the NK peace hashtag it was quickly taken over by propagandists on either side. So uh, I think, and, and this, by the way, I think also gets at another failure of international media often, which is that 
they draw from these online tweets and what have you for lots of their information. And they don't really seek out people who are saying things counter to that line. So in my own sort of Facebook social media world, there was a lot of people circulating stuff calling for peace and this sort of thing. And, and those calls got completely drowned out. And another thing that you've also pointed out, which is ironic because the both sides are funneling a lot of resources into bolstering their military. And, and you've pointed this out too, in terms of it being a, a source for seeking rents and corruption. A lot of reporting seems to also talk about a kind of, there's a kind of techno war fetishism where media coverage will point out, you know, this type of missile being used here, this type of armament being used there. And I even noticed this after I read this uh, comment from you, I thought about this in terms of the Donbass, where I now recall all of this going on, you know, a year and a half ago, too. How does this fascination with the armaments obscure the war's realities? This is a, a really important issue, and it's not just important for Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, like you say, it's important for Donbass and, and especially for uh, lots of American involvement in different regions as well. I mean, in fact, you know, techno, techno war itself was a term popularized by uh, James Gibson in a book that he wrote called the perfect war. And that book was on Vietnam. So obviously, the way I'm using it here to illustrate what's going on in Nagorno-Karabakh is a bit different, given the context, but there's, you know, a lot of similarities as well. One of the things that we, we do need to point out right off the bat is you're absolutely right about the massive military spending and defense uh, on military defense on both sides, right? Last year alone, I think Azerbaijan, according to a recent Bloomberg analysis, spent like 4.8 billion on their, on their military. And that dwarfs Armenia in contrast, which I think spent somewhere around 400, 400 and some odd million. But the, the point is the same, right? Like they're, they're playing this game to, to keep up with each other on, and that game, comes about from a near universal belief, in part anyways, that, you know, if we just had enough tanks, or if we just had enough drones, you know, then we could win, which is, there's not, there's not necessarily any truth to that. We know that technology is not necessarily what brings you battlefield victories and these sorts of things. But it gives the appearance, anyways, of, of being able to claim some type of, of victory. Because techno wars is, is this is this belief, this fetishism, as you said, in technology. But it also is this, how do we weigh that? How do we then weigh victory without victory? And what it comes down to oftentimes is this these body counts or these infographics, these sorts of things. And you see them all the time on social media. And, and basically, one side will throw out, you know, a, a, an infographic that will have, we down this many tanks, we down this many drones. So there's that aspect. It's like it's, it's a way to kind of keep tally of what's going on. So who's winning, you know, this sort of thing, even though that might not be representative at all of what's actually happening on the battlefield. Then you have another aspect, which is basically that journalists might not know much about the conflict, or even journalists that do know about the conflict, you can you can cite technology. If I say if this type of rocket launcher or this type of drone or this type of whatever was used, all of a sudden I sound like I have a lot more credibility as an expert or something. So there's there's that aspect as well, which is really unfortunate. And finally, I mean there there is this kind of you know there's a reason why the United States military invasion, for example, in Iraq started with shock and awe. You know, I mean there's this there's this sort of fetishism in the power of it all. And it, it obscures what's really happening on the front lines. And I would imagine, too, that a lot of this, both the, the infographic phenomenon, the journal, Western or international journalists citing these kinds of facts and figures and types of West, weapons can also kind of feedback and use, be used as a way to justify budgets and increase budgets. 
that's obviously a, a massive aspect of it as well. But to be fair, I, I'm not really sure that they need any more justification for increasing their budgets. What I will say is this, though, and, and, and this is important. And, uh, you know, maybe it was something that I thought we might get to. So I'm glad that we have an opportunity, which is that there was one tweet sent out recently by a guy who is basically a, a really a horrible propagandist, right, that tweets out a bunch of really horrible stuff. But he did make an important point here, which is he was saying, you know, ironically, Azerbaijan is this country that has shut down the most or sorry, Armenia is the country that shut down the most Israeli drones because Azerbaijan has been buying so many uh, Israeli drones. And the reason why I bring this up is because there's been lots of really good reporting and, and books written about how, you know, these types of let's say, small wars, right? I, I don't really like using that term because I think it also obscures the reality. But they often get turned into sort of laboratories for arms dealers and manufacturers, okay? So they point to success and failures in different places. And a lot of the reporting so far on this has been directed at Gaza, but it's, 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 not, a, it's not an irony and it's that the same thing is now happening there in Nagorno-Karabakh. I've been seen a couple of, there was an article in, in Kamrasant last week about this aspect of Russia with Syria in terms of what the, the benefits for its arms sales based on their performance in, in, in Syria. So you're absolutely right in terms of it being a laboratory. Now, the, the other thing too is that the conflict, it seems, and, and how it's reported and how it's propagandized serves as a, a mask or a, a diversion. Um, you write that the conflict is, quote, more about deflecting attention away from two illiberal regimes that have grown disparagingly repressive and inattentive to the needs of their people. Now, you've already mentioned this a little bit a few minutes ago, but why don't you expand on this? In what ways does it serve as this kind of diversion or masking the social realities of, of both countries? Lost in all the coverage of these hostilities is the fact that both regimes recently have seen an, an uptick in mobilization and protests from below. So in Azerbaijan, there were protests as the Minot started tumbling in 2015 and a little bit before. And again, after this horrific fire that burned down an apartment building, building there and killed quite a few people. In Armenia, there were massive protests recently against increasing electricity prices that I think, you know, everybody paid attention to. So um, both of these countries are suffering from massive currency devaluations and economic downturn. Azerbaijan is affected because of tumbling oil prices, Armenia mostly because of falling remittances and an over-reliance on Russia. And on that point, it needs to be noted that part of Azerbaijan's strategy is to isolate Armenia economically. So the conflict effectively acts as a boa constrictor on economic development there. Azerbaijan can only do that because of its oil, which it can only get out of the ground because of Western corporations like BP, and it can only sell because of Europeans' dependence on oil, right? So, but again, I think that the main thing here is to, is that the lesson that elites will use this conflict to protect their position of power. And again, it's a lesson that they learned early on in the conflict, and it's one that still persists today. And the, another mask is, is and you've already mentioned this too, but it particularly, I, I want you to expand on this because you've, you've noted this in a couple of your writings, is that it does mask the corruption, abuse, and the, the really poor conditions of soldiers in the military, the very people who actually have to fight and die in this conflict. Uh, instead, the conflict allows the government to kind of pump the population with tales of heroism and nationalism. So you kind of get this reaffirming, reaffirmation process. What does the confl this conflict mean for the young men who actually have to fight it? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that. This is what I tend to focus a lot on in the region, including Georgian soldiers, by the way, who are currently the second largest contingent serving in NATO's resolute support mission in Afghanistan. So a lot of people don't know that, and they have some issues with their wounded soldiers from that conflict. So 
in terms of what's going on in the armed forces of Armenia and Azerbaijan, it's, it's safe to say that the conditions are, are really appalling all along the front line, and not just in, along the front line, but just in uh, their militaries in general. A report from Safe Soldiers Project, which is something put together by an Armenian-based peace dialogue NGO, says, says it all. I mean, they talk about beatings, tortures, humiliations of the soldiers. They even say that in some cases, murders that are, are taken, say, if one soldier murders another, or even an officer murders a soldier, etc. They're sometimes just like blamed on the opposition, right? So you have this very bizarre sort of othering that goes on as well, where now all of a sudden, because of these poor conditions and, and, and maltreatment, one of, one of our sides, let's say, soldiers dies, and we just tally it up. We tally it up to the, our opponent or whatever. And, you know, there's been demonstrations in Armenia against cons- conscription. Uh, so at least 30% of the students in Armenia have admitted to going to university to avoid serving. And Azerbaijan is absolutely no better. I mean, when I was there, and admittedly very briefly, I was there very briefly, but even in that short time, you know, I heard stories from young men saying like, okay, well, this is how you pay a bribe to stay off the front line. Or like, if you don't have enough money for that bribe, maybe here's a bribe to get a little bit of a better job. And if you don't have enough money for either of those things, that's the poor sod that's, you know, on the front. And the front is is a really terrible place, obviously. People have described it before as, you know, something akin to World War One sort of conditions. I've never been to the front, so it's hard for me to say exactly. For, for obvious reasons, I don't think they let reporters to the front or researchers like myself. And so the issue, of course, is that a lot of these reports and the media coverage I mean, they're basically missing a class analysis. And what it comes down to is that the people doing the fighting end up being the poorest that in many respects, I don't want to say, you know, all of them, right. But in, in, in general, a lot of them end up being the ones that can't afford these bribes or better treatment or don't have the right family connections or whatever it might be. And Again, this is something that international media could focus on. So in addition to crackdown on press freedoms, they could be talking about these sorts of things and the high, the relatively high suicide rates, for example, among soldiers in both armed forces. I mean, these are the sorts of things that we need to be having our attention drawn to so that we don't get sucked into this sort of technocratic, techno-war, that sort of language. Because it's much better, to, in my opinion, anyways, to focus on sort of the horror of it all than to focus on, you know, these these things that in, in the long run, like, I don't care how many drones were shot down. It doesn't tell us much about what's actually going on. And it certainly isn't going to bring us any closer to uh, recognizing the, the humanness in the conflict. The other thing that happens in reporting on this conflict is that many quickly argue that an escalation in the conflict benefits Russia. Um, in fact, there have been several articles that cast the conflict in terms of Russia winning or as part of a proxy war with Turkey, or they point out the very real reality that the Russia is selling weapons to both sides. And Putin, as you put it, is the perfect boogeyman. Uh, what's your criticism of this assertion of first the fact that there is a tendency to put it in kind of geopolitical terms or to kind of see it as yet another instance of Russia med- direct meddling? And and what do the great powers and their allies play in the conflict in general? I mean, you already mentioned the fact that Israel has seems to have a quite a nice drone market with uh, Azerbaijan. This is an interesting question. Okay. And I think the most important thing to take from this is that geopolitics often gets used in the absence of, of 
real information or of talking about the conflict. So it get, what, what I mean to say is, is geopolitics gets used to talk about the conflict in an abstract way. So instead of talking about like what's really happening, it's, it's really easy to make these kind of observations, you know, these sort of speculative observations about like who's winning in absolute terms as if we could actually measure that. And that's obviously very hard to do. That's the first point. The, the second point is, is that just casting Russia as the boogeyman or as the bad guy or the bad actor. Look, I'm not saying that that's wrong necessarily, but what it does is it obscures everyone else's interests in the region. So, well, a lot of people are sitting here going, oh, well, yeah, this looks like beneficial for Putin because he gets to start to play peacemaker. Okay, well, why haven't, you know, the EU or the United States, other OSCE members, how come they haven't pushed hard enough for peace recently? And one of my my personal understanding of the situation is, is that each side has had these sort of short term interests that they've basically protected and that that's really led to a long term deterioration of the peace process. Europe and the United States had a significant interest in the BTC pipeline, which was, you know, this, this big project in the in the early to mid 2000s that essentially provided Azerbaijan with the ability to buy all of these weapons in the first place. The point is, is that there's all these short term things that have seemed to have gotten in the way of let's say the great powers, if you will, participating really fully as members in a peace deal or pressing pressing too hard. And the result, I think, is, is that in addition to all these other reasons for local elites to maintain their hold on power, I mean, Aliyev, he, he owes his power directly to this con. You can trace the origins of the Aliyev dynasty to this conflict just as you can with the Armenian political leaders. The point is, is that the, the great power interests are short-term the long-term interests of the local power interests, and those come into this sort of really toxic mixture where it doesn't look like we're going to get a resolution. And calling Putin this this boogeyman, it obscures all of this, right? Yeah, Russia has interests in the region, definitely. Well, uh, what are the other interests, and why aren't we hearing about those? And by the way, that benefits. Putin likes playing that role, right? It benefits him. He likes it when it appears as if he's pulling the strings. I mean, I don't know this personally. I've never talked to the guy, but it appears, you know, it appears that he enjoys this because it makes him appear like he's in charge. And, and Russia suffers from a lot of the same issues that we've been talking about um, in Azerbaijan and Armenia in terms of, well, how does how do these leaders, let's say, <laughs> a euphemism maybe, but how do they stay in power when you've got all these sort of some mass mobilizations from below? And one way is, is to, to make it look like you're really in charge. Or at least you're you're playing a significant role, or you're an indispensable actor in the region, or you know you get a lot of kind of political cachet for your intervention into this conflict in some way, right? Yeah, well, and 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 here's like here's another thing about that. It seems to me that anybody who's got a real concern, and I think a lot of people obviously have a lot of concerns about um, the people on the front lines as well. Like I don't want to overemphasize this too much, but like the, the issue needs to be pushing for some sort of long term peace deal. A ceasefire is not a peace. And and that's a really important thing to remember. So every year, people get killed on the front from sniper fire or from suicides or some, you know, non-combat related deaths that we've been talking about. And that's going to continue until we get some sort of peace deal. And what we need is for these the United States, some of the other major actors in Europe to, to stop looking at this as a short-term interest and start looking at it as a, no, we need to sue for peace and we need to push hard now. And finally... Armenia, Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh, it's going to fall off the, the, the pages, or at least it's going to fade away from the media eye. 
probably quite quickly. And and given given how it's so easy to slip into these tropes and and be incorporated into the propaganda machine, as you've stated, how should we just to kind of reiterate? Because you've you've said this in, in throughout this interview, but how should we address the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan? Yeah, look, I think that's a, a really good question. First, I think it's really important that international media, every time they run an article on anything going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan, draws attention to the fact that they're jailing dissidents and journalists. And so, you know, recently there's been a lot in the press, thankfully, about some of the dissidents who have been jailed in Azerbaijan, especially Khadija Ismailova for example. And she's been sentenced for several years for being critical of the regime. Uh, Rebecca Vincent just did a really good piece on this for Open Democracy, I think, before the the fighting broke out, but I'm not sure. And the point is, is that Azerbaijan and Armenia, but especially Azerbaijan, has made it extremely difficult to cover what's going on on the front. So it was reported that they even kicked out some Russian reporters who had gone off script by interviewing locals who were, you know, critical of what was happening. So The reason why this is so important is because as long as press freedoms are suppressed in both countries, propaganda will persist and we will continue to have very little real information about what is going on at the front. And this is especially important when things heat up, as they did last week, but it might be even more important when things are quieter, right? This is the time that critical voices can actually make real inroads in pushing back against propagandic rhetoric. And... To that point, I suppose I would add, like, there's a lot of people working on these issues, obviously, in Azerbaijan and in Armenia. There's a lot of sources that you can go for good information. You've got a lot of the people who I've already cited. But in addition, you've got people like Anik James Krikorian. He's a very good reporter on the ground. And in, and in the entire Institute for War and Peace, I think their reporting has been really excellent. Eurasianet has ran a few good pieces on this as well, especially on the civilians and the casualties. And again, you know, like, don't be afraid to look for information outside of international media, right? There's no reason why you can't look to things like reports by Policy Forum uh, Armenia or the International Crisis Group or the Safe Soldiers Project, the Peace Dialogue NGO, Human Rights Watch, these sorts of places. So that's, that's one thing. The second is that, and maybe I'll just end on this point, I suppose, is that it's really easy to pick up on sort of propaganda and to buy into this sort of language of techno war. And it's it's easier doing that than it is to get out stories about people who are suing for peace, right? People who don't want to be sent to the line or people who on both sides now have called for a calming of, of, this, of this rhetoric. And I think that there needs to be a concerted effort to push back a little bit against some of the structural reasons why it's hard to talk about peace in you know in a, in a, in, a, in international media that is drawn to it because of the conflict but i think we need to push back against that and i think we need to include these voices and i think that's really really important that was Ryan McCarl a phd candidate at university college dublin school of geography where he focuses on geopolitics borders and world disorder i'm your host Sean Gillery and this is the srb podcast If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye.